Amen. So good to be with all of you this morning. As Thomas said, we are in the book of Acts, and we're in the eighth chapter. But I'm going to have you turn to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. And we are going to read from uh, Acts 8, 25 through 40. But this morning, I want to, our, our text, our scripture reading to be from Isaiah 52 and 53. Um, so if you're able, will you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? We're going to start at verse 13 in Isaiah 52. This is God's word. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which they, <coughs> excuse me, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as from one whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death. And although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. Because he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many makes intercession for 
the transgressor. You may be seated. Uh, may the Lord bless the reading of his word. <clears throat> Many of you are familiar with the Roman road to salvation. This is a series of scriptures from Paul's epistle to the church in Rome, which when put together are meant to lead a person down the narrow path to eternal life. Some use it as a method, method for evangelism. Some people really love it. Some people aren't too fond of using it for whatever reason. Uh, I would tend to agree with anyone who believes anytime you can get someone to read or hear passages of scripture as it relates to sin or salvation and the gracious good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a win. We should do that. It's the word of God that transforms the heart, not the word of man. So you take folks down this road. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There we are, universal application there. All have sinned. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's known as the Roman road to salvation. <clears throat> this morning, we're going to look at another road to salvation. And on this road travels one man, one man in particular at one specific point in time. And like a good shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to go after the one that has strayed, this morning, we'll see the great lengths to which our sovereign Lord will go to rescue one of his children to salvation and bring them to eternal life. So let's just dive right in here. Uh, turn back with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 25. Luke says, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord... They returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now this they here is a reference to Peter and John, uh, who had just come down from Jerusalem to witness many men and women who had been baptized in the name of Jesus, who believed in the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, they made their way down from Jerusalem, up north to the city of Samaria. They laid hands on those whom months ago they would have regarded as nothing more than uh, despicable half-breeds, only to see them indwelled with the very Spirit of God himself, only to see them welcomed into the church just like the Judean Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. And now the text says they returned to Jerusalem. And I thought it was interesting that, uh, as you know, we're given several examples throughout the Gospels, including in Luke's Gospel, where Jews would go out of their way at times, to avoid Samaria. They didn't want to go through Samaria at all. Now we see these two apostles walking right into town, and then they're heading out the exact same way. Don't forget it was John himself who wanted to call down fire from heaven on the same people in, in Luke chapter 9. They hated one another. These people hated one another, but not anymore. 
Why? Well, because the barriers have been broken down. They've been shattered. All these barriers that were, were lifted up over the centuries had now been done away with. Uh, now Peter and John have no problem walking through that Samaritan city on the way back to Jerusalem. In fact, the text says they went through many of the villages preaching the gospel. Uh, Luke goes on in verse 26. <clears throat> now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise, go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now Luke probably added those words, it's a desert place, as a reminder to Theophilus that this took place in the wilderness, really uh, in the middle of nowhere. In fact, the road that we'll see Philip and this eunuch on, here, eunuch on here, this is the less traveled of the two highways from Jerusalem to Gaza. One was a very, very popular, very busy, very solid, very beaten down road. And the other was this long and hot, uh, freak, uh, infrequently traveled road, this desert road, the Gazan Road. And it's this road that the angel instructs Philip to go down And the text says in verse 27, Philip rose and went. And he says there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, (coughs) seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So first we have an angel of the Lord saying to Philip, go down to this road. Now we have the very Spirit of God himself telling Philip, you see that chariot down there? Go join him. A lot of folks seem to get hung up on this interaction with the angel and the method by which the Spirit spoke with Philip. Was it a vision of the angel? Was the angel glowing? Was he shining? Uh, Did the Spirit talk with Philip in an audible voice, or was it more of an internal impression or feeling here? I don't know that, because the text doesn't say. Luke just says the Spirit told Philip to go over there, and that's what Philip did. And when he went over, he saw this Ethiopian man. It was very likely this black man who was seated in this chariot heading away from Jerusalem back down to Ethiopia, which at this time was just south of Egypt, what some considered in those days to be the very ends of the earth. And Luke says this was a very important man. Uh, We know know this first because he is riding in the chariot. He wasn't driving the chariot, but he was riding in the chariot and coming back from Jerusalem where the text says he came, he went to worship. And again, Luke says uh, um, that this guy was a eunuch. Which, which likely meant he was emasculated and typically meant to be a keeper of the harems of, of the royal courts uh, or one who was, quote, in charge of the women. Try to get that one passed these days. Uh, kings, uh, kings had to have men they could trust in order to maintain order over their concubines, their wives and other earthly delights. And the best man for that job is one who didn't have any particular uh, interest in that kind of thing, if you know what I mean, Jed. Interestingly, I, know, I, I learned that the name eunuch or the term eunuch doesn't always have to, have to refer to somebody who's castrated. Uh, the term was also occasionally used to describe somebody who's very powerful, very influential. 
And that would certainly be the case here as uh, Luke says this man was a man of great authority. He was a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Now, Candace isn't one queen in particular. This is really a title for all of the queens of Ethiopia. It's kind of like the title Caesar. Anyhow, Luke tells us he's coming back from Jerusalem and he's reading the scroll. Now, this is another indication to us that this was a very important man and he had some wealth because he was in possession of a scroll. And he was in possession of the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Not everyone had access to scrolls back then. You had synagogues, they had access to scrolls. You had some wealthy Jews, they they may have had some scrolls, but it wasn't common to be in possession of scrolls. They were very costly. Not everybody could have them. But this man had to have one, which may indicate that he, he had been a Jewish proselyte or a convert to Judaism. Though interestingly, if he were a eunuch in the truest sense of the word, uh, Deuteronomy 23 would have strictly prohibited him from uh, the Israelite community of worship. The law is clear. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Meaning, if this guy were a true eunuch, as, as if the poor sap hadn't suffered enough, he wouldn't even be allowed in the temple at this time. We don't know the specific details of this man's beliefs or background, but we do know this. He was searching for truth. He came from a place which was overrun with a pantheon of gods. It was full of idol worship. It was full of ancestor worship. And somewhere along the way, he'd heard of the one true God of Israel and had gone up to offer his worship. Here we catch him heading back down on what many have said to be a one to three month journey down this dusty highway. And I want you to think for a moment. I want you to think about this guy for a moment and and what his trip to Jerusalem would have been like uh, at that time. Think of the state of Judaism in that first century. Think about what we read about in the Gospels. Think about Jesus' condemnation of the religious authorities, his cleansing of the temple. Think of the Ethiopian man coming into this place filled with money changers and extortioners, uh, this marketplace which was rampant with greed and a lust for power. Uh, This place which was filled with men who would prey upon weary and vulnerable pilgrims, exploiting them, uh, charging them uh, an exuberant amount for sacrificial animals and a a premium for the currency exchange. Think of this guy going in there. I can't help but think this man was extremely discouraged by his trip to Jerusalem at that time. It was not a good place. But though he may have left discouraged and left with an empty heart, he didn't leave empty-handed, did he? He had that scroll, right? The scroll was about 8 to 12 inches tall, and it could be anywhere from 16 to 145 feet long. And this guy was reading it. He was reading it out loud, which was common in those days, as the words were all together. They were not full of punctuation marks or paragraphs like we were used to, but they were all together. And Luke says in verse 30, Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I? Unless someone guides me. He invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shares is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. 
Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. <clears throat> and the eunuch said to, this, uh, to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? What a great question this is. Who is this? Uh, who is this sheep who is slaughtered unjustly? Who is this lamb who remains silent before its shearers? Is this talking about Israel? Or is this guy talking about himself? Is this Isaiah or is it someone else? It was a good question. And one that many folks, even today, wrestle with. In fact, many ethnic Jews still don't understand this question. They just can't see it or this passage. In fact, the section of Isaiah has been called the torture chamber of the rabbis. It was a great question by this Ethiopian eunuch. A great question, but an even better response from the evangelist. Verse 35 Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. I love that little wordplay by Luke, by the way. Notice in verse 32, speaking of the lamb, Isaiah said, He opened not his mouth. And the suffering servant of God went to his death without fight or struggle. But now the spiritual war would be fought and won as his followers would not cease in opening their mouths. They would not cease in declaring his gospel and setting prisoners free from their slavery and bondage to sin and death. Philip opens his mouth and says, the sheep is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is the Lamb of God. Jesus of Nazareth is the perfect fulfillment of this text. Luke says, beginning with this scripture, Philip told this eunuch the good news about Jesus. This reminds me of Jesus' encounters with with the two two disciples on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24. Uh, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The scriptures were guiding the way. That's what Philip's doing here. Uh, he's rightly interpreting to this Ethiopian eunuch the things concerning Jesus, the Christ. He, he's rightly interpreting Isaiah's prophecy, which, which we read to start our time, which so clearly describes the virgin birth and the perfect life and the crucifixion for sinners, the substitutionary death, the subsequent burial, and the Messiah's triumphant resurrection from the dead. It's all there. Notice this interpretation had a profound impact on this eunuch, as Luke says in verse 36. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Verse 38. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now some of you are going to say, well, what happened to verse 37? Well, that verse doesn't appear in most of the most reliable manuscripts, any of the earliest uh, manuscripts. This was a later scribal edition. Some have even thought that it could be a part of some sort of baptismal formula. Uh, verse 37 said, What prevents me from being baptized? Or excuse me, that was 36. But Philip says, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Nothing inherently wrong with that statement. That's a good good statement. But again, it's not a part of the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. I don't want you to get caught up in those verse numbers, by the way. 
chapters, verse numbers. Those, those things were added like 500 years ago. Probably about the same time this phrase was added uh, to the text, but it's not in the original uh, manuscripts. So, so what about this baptism? Was it a full submersion? Very likely. But it could have been a, a Philip pouring a water on this guy's head. I'm, I'm not sure of the details. I do know this word baptize or baptizo used here does mean immersion, but again, we can't tell if that's the actual method used. <clears throat> what is certain is this, this man had made an outward declaration of what certainly appears to be a Holy Spirit orchestrated inward transformation. He had faith and he was being obedient. Look at what Luke says in verse 39. Just like that, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, literally snatched away, snatched Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Uh, But Philip found himself at Azotus. As he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now again, in an account like this, it would be very easy to get bogged down by the unknowns, by the speculative details here. Uh, I saw in many commentaries They said, oh, was this the angel Gabriel or was this Jesus himself? Uh, Did the Spirit speak in an audible voice or was it just an internal impression? What does it mean that the Spirit carried Philip away? It's the same word for snatched up that we uh, read as the one that describes the rapture. Uh, We read similar snatching away of Elijah and Ezekiel, but what does this look like? Was, Was he grabbed by the collar and just pulled out of the water? His feet are dangling, he's dripping wet, and he's waving goodbye to everybody? Or did he just disappear? Uh, Did Philip have to lay his hands on this eunuch to receive the Holy Spirit like the apostles? Did the eunuch end up speaking in tongues or anything? I mean, what was the evidence that this guy was born again? Like we saw in the last account. Remember last week, Luke said, they had received the Holy Spirit, but why not here? How do we know this guy's not just a a professor, but he's a true possessor? I don't want us to get bogged down on these things. Because they're not answered in the text. Everybody says, why do you always say you don't know? Because I don't know. I'm the one who has to stand before God and give an account of what I teach. I'm not here for speculation, right? If you want to read, there's plenty of commentaries available, and these guys stay speculate, speculate. I want us to focus on what we do see in this text this morning. And I think there's sufficient application for everyone. First for the believer, then for the unbeliever, and then... Just universal application and for everyone, for the, you know, the truths of our creator. First, let's look at Philip. Now, we know this guy had the spirit dwelling on the inside of him. We're told in Acts chapter 6 that he was a man of good repute. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, right? Okay, so many of us here are like Philip, full of the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling on the inside of us. So what can we learn from this account? What principles can we take away I think three things. And the first is his obedience. Look at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. What does verse 27 say? And he rose and went. Verse 29. The spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So, verse 30. Philip ran to him. 
Jesus said in Luke 24, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8, verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. Philip was obedient. He was obedient to the commands of his Lord. And someone says, well, easy for him. I mean, he saw an angel. He heard the Spirit in whatever form he spoke to him in. But to those people, I would say, the Spirit of God speaks to you today as well. Do you read his word? One preacher said, do you want to hear God speaking to you? Read your Bible. Do you want to hear, do you want to hear God speak to you audibly? Read it out loud. <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> this is how he speaks to us now. Okay? The scriptures are alive. They're powerful. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and joints of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We don't need to hear angels. We don't need to have visions. We don't need to experience supernatural occurrences. The scriptures are wonderful and awesome in themselves. And they are sufficient. They're sufficient. Do you know his word? Do you understand what you are reading? Do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand the truth that, that rests in your lap or rests in your hands right now? Do you know the truth? Are you then walking in obedience to that truth. That's what we see Philip doing here. Uh, the story is told of a man in the late 19th century named John Eaglin, a man who had never preached a sermon in his life, never. It wasn't that he didn't want to, it's just that he never needed to, but then one morning he did. Uh, the snow left his town of Colchester, England, uh, buried in white, and when he awoke on that January Sunday in 1850, he thought of staying home. Who would go to church in such weather, he says. But he reconsidered. After all, he was a deacon. And if the deacons didn't go, who would? So, in obedience to his calling, he put on his boots and his hat and his coat, and he walked the six miles to this Methodist church. Now, he wasn't the only member who considered staying home. In fact, he was one of the few who came. Only 13 people were present. Twelve members and one visitors. Even the preacher himself was snowed in. So someone suggested they all go home. But Eaglin would hear none of that. They'd come this far. They would have a service. Plus, they had this visitor. They had a 13-year-old boy. But who would preach? Eaglin was the only deacon. Deacon, it fell to him. And so preach he did. And his sermon lasted only 10 minutes. And his text was Isaiah 45. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Look unto me and be saved. And who was the 13-year-old boy that had heard this phrase and was subsequently converted through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word? It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who had been called England's greatest contribution to the spread of the gospel in the 19th century. The point is, this man was obedient, even when it was inconvenient. This man was obedient... And the Lord did a mighty work through this obedience. Think of Philip here. (laughs) 
think of this guy. Uh, things were happening in Samaria. Things were going so well. People were being saved. There was true revival. How easy would it have been for him to say, are you kidding me, God? You want me to leave right now? Look what's happening as a result of my preaching. Look at, look at the fruit being born. The harvest has come. What do you mean go down to Gaza? Why would I take that road anyway? Why don't I take the main highway? There's much more people there. They can hear the gospel too. Uh, what do you mean go down to that chariot? There's a full-blown Gentile sitting in that chariot. I'm not going to talk to him. No, that's not what Philip said. Philip was a man of conviction and a man in submission to the will of the Lord. He was obedient. He was obedient. Second takeaway from Philip. He was sincere. I love his question to the eunuch in verse 30. Do you understand what you're reading? I don't know why this just jumped out to me as Philip uh, genuinely caring for the spiritual condition of this man. He heard him reading this text, and without just saying, oh, that's Jesus, or giving this guy a gospel track and moving to the next town, he says, do you know what you're reading? Like, do you know what you're, you're saying? And then he took the time to explain it, got in the chariot and explained it. I think there's a place for what's known as drive-by evangelism. I think there's a place for pamphlets and tracts and flyers. We were just talking about this morning, Brian. I think those things are great. Uh, But I see a, a sincerity that we should all ask the Lord for, and I believe it comes by looking at people as eternal souls. By doing everything that we can to not simply look on the outside appearance or status of men and women, but to actually look, look at them as everlasting souls who, who we know will spend their entire eternity in one of two places, either eternal bliss in heaven with their Lord or eternal torment in hell. I, I love the sincerity of Philip here in this text. Lastly, Philip was faithful. Again, in verse 35, it says, Then Philip opened his mouth, beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Again, he was faithful in his obedience, he was faithful in his declaration, and he was faithful in his trust in the sufficiency of scripture. Like any legitimate evangelist, he he revealed his dependence was not on miracles or wonders, but on the very truths of the word of God. He was faithful to the text, faithful to the scripture. We must follow his example. What about this eunuch? What about this man who was on the Gazan road to salvation? What about this man who some might refer to as a seeker or God-fearer? The writer of Ecclesiastes tells us God has put eternity into man's heart or into the heart of a man. There's something in the heart of every man, every woman that longs for the eternal truths of God. This eunuch had a strong desire, a strong passion, a zeal to satisfy that longing. He even tried to go to the religious capital of the world, right? The, the place where the one true God have, is said to have resided. He, he knew the false gods of his nation and culture would never satisfy. So he made his trek up to Jerusalem, up to worship the true God with many other foreigners and pilgrims. He sought the true contentment and peace that could only come from his creator, and he was likely left wanting 
as this chariot pulled out of the city limits. In the same way, if you're here this morning, then I'm certain you know of the barrenness of this world. Uh, The utter inability of this world to satiate that eternal longing that's in your heart. And so you fill it with all kinds of things, right? You fill it with relationships and your job and and food and drink and love and sports and entertainment, politics, even religion. People try to fill it with religion. But the truth is, like this man, you're left wanting. It never satisfies. Nothing in this world can ever satisfy your soul. The society is as empty as the rituals were in the temple 2,000 years ago. They will never satisfy. I would encourage you to run toward this reality of eternity put into your heart. Don't quell it. Don't suppress it. Don't run from it. But run toward it and try to find answers with the same zeal that this man from Ethiopia had. Never hesitate to ask yourself these questions. What's going to happen the moment I die? And where will I spend eternity? Ask yourself these questions. And like Philip, I can save you a lot of time this morning. Uh, We can tell you what will satisfy your soul. We can tell you the good news of Jesus Christ and You can leave this place absolutely certain of where you'll spend eternity, but it will require humility. Humility, which is also evident in this testimony of this eunuch. Think about it. Think about this guy. This guy had it going on. He was being chauffeured around the region. He was a high official. He was a treasurer to the queen. He could just up and go to Jerusalem whenever he wanted. He's buying up scrolls left and right. But this thought of eternity humbled him. And in his humility, he asked all the right questions. He said, no, I don't understand what I'm reading. How could I? How can I understand this unless someone guides me, unless someone leads me, unless, like a blind man, someone allows me to grab their arm and and they lead me into the way of understanding? He says, who does this text speak of? Who's the the prophet talking about, himself or is it someone else? He was humble. He he knew he couldn't save himself. He had seen seen firsthand the emptiness and vanity of mere religion. He didn't want religion. He wanted the truth. And he was humble enough to ask. And thank God Philip was there to give the answers, right? Which takes us away, uh, which takes us to the final takeaway from this eunuch, He was zealous, he was humble, and he was chosen. He was chosen. He was sovereignly predestined for salvation from before the foundations of the earth, just like everyone else who is saved. And this isn't a bad thing or or an offensive thing, as many take it to be. It's actually the best news in the world, and it shows that our salvation ultimately is no way dependent upon us. And it's a reality whether folks like it or not. This guy is just like any other sinful man who has been reconciled to a holy God. He was chosen. He had to be chosen. He didn't earn it. Uh, The eunuch was among those who, like all believers, can say with the Apostle Paul, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us 
in him, when? Before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The Son who said, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me, what? Calls him, draws him, draws him. That's just what Jesus said. In the same way, this eunuch was chosen, predestined, drawn for salvation from before the very foundations of the earth. And a recognition of this truth, whether you're here as an unbeliever or a believer today, is paramount to a proper understanding of the Bible as a whole, namely that God is sovereign. He is sovereign. This is universal application here. We are all under the dominion of an all-powerful, all-sovereign, all-providential creator. A.W. Pink, in his book, The Sovereignty of God, said, The sovereignty of of the God of Scripture is absolute, irresistible, infinite. When we say that God is sovereign, we affirm his right to govern the universe which he has made for his own glory, just as he pleases. And that's what Psalm 115 says, right? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And if this account in Acts chapter 8 doesn't prove to you that God is absolutely sovereign over every aspect of our lives, including our salvation, I'm not sure what to tell you. Other than look to the text. Look at the text. Look at the work of God in this text and the great lengths he has gone through to sovereignly orchestrate every minute detail to bring this man unto a saving knowledge of himself. God sent his angel to his evangelist who told him to go to this road at this specific time on this specific day and then the Spirit of God himself told Philip to join this chariot carrying this man who was reading this section of this prophecy which was written some 700 years earlier. And causing Philip to run to join the specific chariot to speak again to this specific man. As one commentator said, if Philip would have walked, the eunuch may have been to Isaiah 54. But he didn't walk. He ran. And just as the eunuch was reading about the unjustly murdered, completely innocent Lamb of God, In God's sovereignty, Philip was right there to give the proper interpretation through the proclamation of the gospel. The guy hears, he gets baptized, and Philip is taken away. He makes his way back up north, preaching the gospel all the way to Caesarea, where he would spend the next at least 20 years of his life. He'll pop back up later in Acts. All this to save one man? One guy? Well, why didn't God just have one of the apostles who hung back at Jerusalem find this guy and share the gospel with him? Save everyone a lot of time. Answer? Why? Our Lord is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. His ways are greater than our ways. 
Now, tradition and early church history would say that this Ethiopian man, he went on to be a great evangelist himself, missionary to his own people in Ethiopia. Now, Luke doesn't say that, but what is absolutely undeniable from this passage is that our God sits in the heavens and does all that he pleases. He reigns above all, and he reigns over all. He is absolutely and totally sovereign in every aspect of our lives, including our salvation. Steve Lawson has said, divine sovereignty is the unhindered free exercise of his throne rights to rule over all. This must be the first article of our doctrinal creed, the cornerstone of all divine truth, namely that God is God. And the God that is, is the God that reigns. Brothers and sisters, a God who does not reign is a contradiction in terms. Every other doctrinal teaching must be brought into alignment with this truth about God. Lawson says his love is sovereign love. His grace is sovereign grace. His mercy is sovereign mercy. His wrath is sovereign wrath. And this truth has been upheld by the greatest teachers and preachers the world has known. That same Charles Spurgeon who was unable to make it to his own church that snowing morning sitting in that Methodist pew being converted by the Spirit and the Word said, the sovereignty of God is the pillow the Christian lays his head upon at night. Jonathan Edwards said, absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. God's sovereignty has ever appeared to me a great part of his glory. It has often been my delight to approach God and adore him as a sovereign God. Again, A.W. Pink said this, a God whose will is resisted, whose designs are frustrated, whose purpose is checkmated, possesses no title to deity, and so far from being a fit object of worship, merits nothing but contempt not God. We're perhaps given no better example of the sovereignty of God and salvation than this account of this Ethiopian eunuch. God is sovereign. The second truth we can take away regarding our Lord, he is just. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before it shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. We already know who this is talking about. The Lord Jesus Christ. But the question is why? Well, let's head back down that Roman road. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith, not by works, but by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We have all sinned. 
We have all violated the perfect law of God and we are all worthy of his divine condemnation forever and ever in eternal torment. A just judge will condemn and sentence a lawbreaker, right? Or else he wouldn't be just. The, the law has been broken. The penalty must be paid. Uh, in the same way, every single law of God uh, broken by the will of man w- will be paid for. Every sin will be paid for. That's the only way that God can remain just. As has been rightly said, no sin will go unpunished. Every sin committed by every person who has ever lived will be paid for. Every sin will be paid for. Either the sinner will pay for their sin in eternal judgment, or it was paid for in full in the penal substitutionary atonement and sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, but every sin will be paid for. And the good news, and what we see all throughout the scriptures, including here in Acts chapter 8, is that the God of the Bible is gracious. He's so committed to grace and mercy that he forgives lawbreakers like you, like me. He's so committed to justice that he put his son on a cross as the perfect sacrifice to satisfy the legal demands of what that justice requires. As he says, all who truly believe in this gospel of my son will be saved from eternal punishment. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus of pardon receives. The question for everyone here this morning is, have you placed your trust in the perfect, sinless, spotless, sacrificial Lamb of God? Have you trusted Him? Do you know what you're reading? Do you know what's been read this morning? Jesus Christ didn't deserve to die. He didn't deserve those wages, but we do. Remember this morning, Cameron read from Luke 24. The guy on the cross says, we are under condemnation justly, but this guy has done nothing wrong. But that's what makes the grace of our Creator so amazing, right? That's why we sing. That's why we praise Him. He had to die. He had to be crushed by His Father, His father who placed the son, his lamb, placed upon his son the sin of everyone who believe in him and call upon his name. The just for the unjust. He takes our place on the cross. We take his place in glory. Have you trusted in this reality? If you've trusted in this reality, then rest in this reality. Uh, Live out your days in obedience to him and faithfulness to him with a sincere heart, with a transformed heart. Uh, For those of you who are here today, you're unsure if your sins have been paid for by the perfect sacrifice of the perfect son of God, I would implore you to place your trust in Christ today to recognize that in his sovereign will, he brought you to this place In this age, in this century, on this month, on this day, at this hour, in this room, on that chair, hearing these words to tell you to repent of your sin. To turn from your sin and turn to the Savior. To to flee from the vainglorious promises and distractions of this world, from the religion of this world. To flee from the wrath to come. And to do so in humility. And in humility, bend your knee to the only one who can truly satisfy the eternal longings of your heart, to the only one who can truly forgive you and reconcile you to a holy God. 
Place your faith in the only one who is able to wash you as white as snow, grant you eternal life in his presence. I would implore you today to bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want to know more about what this means, please talk with me or someone after the service. But don't leave this place today without grabbing someone's arm and having them lead you down the path to eternal life. Jesus said, all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Come to the Savior this morning. I bid you. Amen. Amen. We hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's Word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel.